Thank you, children. Take your Bibles with me this morning as we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. It's our joy to, again, open God's Word and to feed from the Word, the living Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 12, and as we're looking into the text, the title of today's message is Lord of the Sabbath, part 2. Lord of the Sabbath, part 2. Last week together we introduced, beginning in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, uh, this context of what is taking place in the life of in ministry of Jesus. We now pick up here in the Word of God in, in Matthew chapter 12, picking up there in verse 8. Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when he, when Jesus, departed from that place, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now they ask this question, you notice there the dash or just immediate explanation, the motive, so that they might accuse him. Verse 11, then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value than then is a man than sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored whole as the other. Then, verse 14, the Pharisees went out, and they plotted against him how they might, notice here, destroy him. As we introduced last week, this is the word of God, as we introduced last week, we're at a pivotal section in Matthew's gospel to where, where Jesus is now turning and fixing his face like a flint towards the cross. His audience is one of the Jews seeking to, as we just saw in verse 14, to destroy him. There is no longer an ear of interest. There is no longer a heart that says, could this be? There is not a heart present like, say, Nicodemus, who says, Looking at the facts objectively, we know that no man can do these things lest he be aided by or have the power of God. This group of individuals have hardened their heart against the word, the message, and the person of Jesus. Now Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 that to understand the word of God, you must be spiritually enabled. Spiritually enabled. In fact, he says the natural man does not, or the, the carnal man, the man without the Spirit of God, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We hear, have here a context where these Pharisees, these religious leaders, are so close to the truth, they're so close to salvation, they're literally talking to the way the truth, and the life, but yet they are very, very far away. They're much like Judas, who kissed the door of salvation on the cheek, and yet he died and went to hell. Now, in this context, there is a theme. There's a number of themes. We do not have time to kind of flesh them out or look at all of them, but we see the issue here is the issue of the observance of the Sabbath day, the Jewish observance of the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day, as we saw last week, was instituted by God in creation, and here they are looking at Jesus and his disciples as violating this, in, this 
Sabbath day that God had established. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God purposed for his people that they would have a day, one day in seven, what we would call our, our Saturday, the last day of the week. They would take that day and there would be a weekly rest, a weekly Sabbath rest. Instructions were given in how to observe it and what not to do, but yet not to the nth degree. So the Pharisees came along and interpreting how to rest on the Sabbath day, how to worship God on the Sabbath day. We need more clarification. And they took the law of God and turned it into a phone book. They turned it into something that was unrecognizable. So the Old Testament Sabbath was a day of rest that ensured the regulation of God's people and ensured that no one would, would be abused, uh, servants and masters and husbands and wives and children. It was a great regulating day for the people of God. Everyone was given this day. Exodus 20 verse 8 uh, tells us, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. This is repeated at different times throughout the Old Testament. The Jewish people understand this. But by the time of Christ, it had turned into something that was unrecognizable. The Jewish leaders shepherded the heart of the people to go beyond what the law of God said. They went beyond what Scripture said. They not only went beyond what the law of God said, they made their traditions higher than God's law. They made their commentary authoritative higher than Scripture. So the people were no longer hearing what God said, they were hearing what the rabbis said. And so the word of God, or excuse me, the word of the rabbis became more authoritative than the word of God. And that's what we see here. This is what the dynamic is. We're establishing the mindset. Verse 1, you notice the accusation that was made. At that time, Jesus and his disciples are accused of profaning, of violating the Sabbath. Well, what did they do? Verse 1 tells us they were simply hungry, and they simply reached out as they're walking, and they plucked the heads of some grain and began to snack. They began to eat. So that accusation was made that we saw last week, that they have labored on the Sabbath. They have literally harvested grain. Now the law, listen, the law did prohibit taking out tools and going about performing a harvest in a neighbor's field. But that is not what is happening. There was provision that was made for the people who were hungry, those who needed to eat as they went from point A to point B. Now notice as we look here in this text, Jesus gives three answers to this accusation. Three times Jesus takes these men to the word of God. Verse 3, have you not read... Verse 5, have you not read in the law? And verse 7, if you had known what this means. Jesus is sticking it to them by saying, you pride yourselves on knowing the law of God. But the reality is, is you don't know the law. You know your traditions. You know your traditions more than you know what God's word 
has said. But church, let's just remind ourselves here this morning. Our world is full of people who think they know God's word, isn't it? Just as an aside, we live and work and live life among people who make appeals to Scripture, but yet they do not know Scripture or the context of Scripture or how to rightly handle or divide the word of truth. Here we see an example of Jesus just simply guiding them back to the word of God. And so it serves as a model for us and an apologetic model of when we find ourselves with professing Christians, when we find ourselves with people who have a peripheral understanding of the Word of God, and yet, according to our perspective, they're, they're, they're lacking some things, listen, take them right back to Scripture. Scripture is where the power is at. Not our emotions, not our opinions, but Scripture. It is the sword of the Spirit. And again, I just I can't repeat this enough, but this is what Jesus shows us. He does this again and again in the Word of God. Have you not read? Do you not understand? Now, there is an edge here, and should be. Jesus has a voice for the sheep. Jesus has a voice for the weary. And he's, we've already seen that at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary. But here we see Jesus has a voice for the wolves. It's a sarcastic voice. Uh, it's a voice with edge. Here is where we see Jesus doesn't look so Jesus-y, for lack of better words. I don't mean to be irreverent. But wait a second, that's not like Jesus. Well, that's interesting because this is what Jesus models right here, taking us right back to the Word of God, right? So we do need to be careful. Some of us have a bent more towards sarcasm or edginess or seeking to be right. or Listen, that's never the goal, okay? That's not the goal. The goal is the truth. The most precious thing that we have is the truth. And wherever we see the truth, we want to bow to the truth. In fact, how we expose our own Phariseeism when it begins to creep up in our hearts is things that we've held dear, things that we've always been taught, things that were modeled for us maybe in yesteryear or by those that we know and love. But yet, let's be honest, they go beyond the bounds of Scripture. And where we see what Scripture says, that's where we stop. Where the Word of God speaks, we speak. Where the Word of God is silent, we are silent. And we make a distinction between our carrying out of something or our preference of something based upon a principle in the Word of God, but we say this is how we do it, but this is not the Word of God. The Word of God says that whatever the Word of God says. Now notice what Jesus does. He takes them back into the Word of God, and he teaches them about himself. It's just a reminder to us that all of the Scriptures testify about one person, and that's Jesus. He says the Scriptures testify of me. So lest we get caught up in the ceremony, the, the, the pattern, and yet miss Jesus, to miss Jesus is to miss everything. To miss Jesus is to miss salvation. To miss Jesus is to head into deadly, eternal danger. So what we have here is he takes them into a background, 1 Samuel chapter 21, of Jesus and David. He is the true and better David. And Jesus exposes for them and teaches them how the Sabbath does not restrict deeds of necessity. You'll notice in all your profound statements of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession, the London uh, Confession of Faith, the, uh, um, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, uh, on and on, we could give some examples. They all have a statement, not on the Sabbath, but now on what is considered the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. But you'll notice that in there, there is the phrase mercy and necessity. There is an intentional setting aside of observing the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is not the Sabbath day. Let's make that very clear. The Lord's Day is a new thing. It's a new day. It's the day of the resurrection. It's the day of Christ. But they make an articulation there saying, 
except for deeds of mercy and necessity, we will strive to make this day distinct as unto the Lord. Now, that's a confessional statement. Let me make that clear as well. But where do we get that necessity, deeds of necessity and mercy? We get it from Jesus. We get it right here in the scriptures. The Sabbath day was never meant to restrict or prohibit deeds of necessity. And he shows us this example in 1 Samuel 21 where David and his men are starving. And they come into the temple. And the law of God is violated in one sense. The ceremonial law of God is violated in one sense so that the future king of Israel can stay alive. Now Jesus, unless that rings awkwardly to your ear, just remember who's telling us this. Jesus is telling us this. If any other man was telling us this, we'd be like, wait a second, I think we need to dig into that a little bit further. This is the example that Jesus gives. So the deeds of necessity, life and death issues, are not affected by the Sabbath. We can feed people who are about to die on the Sabbath day. The second lesson that he gives, and by the way, we see this exhibited, and we looked last week in the example of that good Samaritan. Lest you think that's obvious, we all say, come on, Legrand, that's really obvious. We all know that. Oh, really? Because that's where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. They didn't. They were not going to violate the, the context is the assumption of the Sabbath day. A man is dying in the ditch, and yet a Levite and a priest continue on to go, notice here, to go serve God. Friends, let me just exhort you. There's a whole lot more to that text than this. Of course, we, we are the ones in the ditch. But if on your way to church any day, ever, <laughs> you're passing someone dying in a ditch, please stop and help. Please stop and help. Let me just make sure, in case you don't know that, let me just clarify the position of Grace Church on these matters. Let's live out our name and live up to our name. The second example that he gives is regarding the priests. How God's desire in his heart is not for action alone. We see this in verses 5 through 7. How the Sabbath does not restrict service to God. He makes a very practical point about how the priests are laboring and working and slaughtering animals, observing the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, but offering up service to God. And yet, this is acceptable unto the Lord. And then he also shows us how the Sabbath does not restrict acts of mercy. Acts of mercy. God cares about our heart. Before we move into our text properly this morning, I just want to remind ourselves about legal, legalism and Phariseeism. We looked at this extensively last week. We will not do the same extent this week. But to those who are new and joining in on the study, legalism is any time we're trusting in what we do to be our salvation, our functional saving of ourselves. Um, many Christians this morning will, will come into the house of the Lord thinking like this, what I'm doing right here makes God happy. What I'm doing is, in a sense, a, a contributing to God's grace towards me. The fact that I was in church today uh, means that I'm on my way to heaven. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, how I know is that I went to Grace Church today. Now, let's take it a step further. Some people, it's not enough, they'll say, oh, I'm not only a Christian because I went to church today, I went, I'm a Christian because I, I taught today. Or I, I, I served the body of Christ on the worship team today. Some, God forbid, I am a Christian because I preached the word of God today. Legalism is anything that is added to the grace of God in Christ for salvation. All right, Phariseeism is a spirit that comes out of that. And that spirit is something that is compassionless. It is harsh. It is sterile. It is the means by which you judge everyone in your world around you about how they do not match a standard. 
So let's just remind ourselves, friends, the standard is Christ. And when we look at the standard being Christ, what a standard. In fact, we will not meet that standard until Christ glorifies us in glory, where he completes the good work which he began in us. So listen, God, Christ is the standard. Christ is committed to our change, but none of us are meeting that standard until glorification. So the standard's not me, standard's not you, and God help us if we ever look around and say, and beat people over the head with a club and say, you're not meeting the standard. The standard is not legalism or Phariseeism or anything that we could ever do. In fact, it's not by works of righteousness that we are saved, but by his mercy that we are saved. We need to understand that distinction that what we do here is because of Jesus. All in all is Jesus, and Jesus is everything. We serve Christ. We teach his word. We preach his word. We sing his praises. We serve as ushers. Uh, we serve as greeters. We attend with the body of Christ, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves uh, as he has commanded us because we love Jesus. Not because we need God's uh, keep him from pouring out his wrath on us today or because we need to stay in his grace and favor. That's called works righteousness. So now we look into our text this morning. That is the context. That is what is happening. A number of things are happening. Jesus is exposing their harsh lostness, their harsh reality. We'll see the hope, number one, in verse six, the harassment in verse 10, the hypocrisy in verse 11, the healing in verse 13, and then we'll conclude with the hostility in verse 14. First of all, I want you to note, beginning there in verse 6, let's bridge the gap. We notice the hope that is standing there in the middle of them. Verse 6, yet I say to you, Jesus says, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. In the Jewish mindset, there was nothing greater than the temple. The temple was the place, or what the temple had become, was the place of their salvation, the place of their righteousness. The temple was the centric circle, uh, attending the temple, being at the temple. What happened at the temple is what saved us. So when he stands there and says that there is one greater than the temple, this is the ultimate blasphemy to these leaders. They were so enamored with their system, their, their traditions, they see no need for what Jesus is there for. He has come to seek and to save the lost, and they see no need of that. We have the temple. We have our righteousness. We have our system. They are what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3, 7. They are ever learning, but yet somehow never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're ever learning, putting phone books, if anybody remembers what those are, right? Phone books on top of the law of God. Here you've got not just the law of God, the complete canon of Scripture, but they put phone books on top of this. Those phone books get so stacked up, we forget what it's all about. And this is all about Jesus. This testifies of Jesus. So they're ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as we look here, this is a spirit. This is a pharisaical spirit. This is a legalism where it has a head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. Now this weekend, my wife and I were out of town and Yesterday, we were teaching on parenting. Now, don't laugh at that. Um, I told the audience, I told those who were present there that day, I may have, at any time, may have to resign from this little speaking engagement as they come get us about one of our kids beating up another kid. One of our kids up here has a black eye as, as a testify, uh, testifying to that. 
But there was something in my morning preparation this morning that I thought I feel led of the Holy Spirit to apply to our message this morning. It's something we touched on yesterday as we make practical application in our parenting. So we think about legalism in our parenting. You know, sometimes in our parenting, we're more concerned with the behavior than we are the heart. We are more concerned that our child does not embarrass us than we are their soul, having a right standing before the Lord. Sometimes it's not only do what I say, which is good. They need to learn to obey. The Bible says children obey your parents and the Lord, but that is not the end goal. The end goal is that they know Jesus, love Jesus, and love us too as a result. Sometimes I think we're more concerned with the performance, the outward performance, than we are the heart. So it's a both and, not an either or. Just want to make my way of application. We miss the obvious need for the obscure reality. Notice verse 8, for the Son of Man, this is the hope that is among them, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's be clear. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. Matthew 5, 18, he says this, do not think I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. But not only does Jesus fulfill, he's greater than And that's what he's saying here. Jesus is greater than the law. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He's greater than the temple because the temple points to his sacrificial work. He is the temple. Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, he'll say. Speaking of himself. That is blasphemy to their ears because that is where their perfunctory salvation is. How dare you attack our gospel? How dare you attack our source of salvation? And by the way, To the Pharisee, when you begin to attack their means of salvation, you'll begin to see who that real person is. You begin to find out real quick what people are trusting. Is it Jesus? Or is it this means, this good thing within the life of a church? But actually, that's what they're trusting in to save them. And that's why they become like a viper if you ever move the chair or something like that. I don't want to go too far that way because it's not helpful. But I think you can understand what I mean by that. And Jesus says, listen, I'm Lord of the temple. I am greater than the temple. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Sometimes we can make the means greater than the purpose for which the means is created. And that is exactly what happens here. Going back to parenting, you know, every parent has a newborn baby and everything changes, right? A schedule is created. The schedule was created to help the parent live life, but all of a sudden the schedule becomes master. Nap time becomes Lord. We have to remind ourselves, listen, the schedule was made for man, not man for the schedule, right? So many applications we could give to that in practical life and family. What Jesus is saying here, though, is beyond all that, he is Lord of the Sabbath. Here we have Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the creator of all things, John 1, 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him these things consist. All things consist. So here's the point that Jesus is saying. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the temple. What does he mean by that? I am God. I am God. I and the Father are one. And here's also the key point to this claim. They reject this claim. These Jewish leaders reject this claim of deity despite the incontrovertible evidence that is here. 
So as we look here at the Word of God, we see that the same is true in our day as well. There are many who are more zealous for their religion or rule than they are for Christ. We cannot forget what it is all about. Looking there at verse 9, this is a transition verse. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Now, what we don't find here in Matthew's recording of this event, but Luke tells us, is that this is not the same day. This is actually the following week, another Sabbath day. What we have here in verse 9 is actually a round two. Message, you know, sometimes we'll, in our correspondence, just say, I got the message. Message received. Thumbs up. Gotcha. We're on the same page, right? But the message is not received. They don't get it. They're continuing to hound Jesus. They're continuing to pursue him, looking for some wickedness or claim, some blasphemy that they can pin to him. So verse 9 tells us what happens. He goes into the synagogue. What is the synagogue? It is a place for worship. The synagogue was where the word of God was studied. It's where the word of God is applied. In one sense, the synagogue was a forerunner of what we're doing here in, in the life of the church, where God's word is preeminent, God's word is read. We see that Jesus regularly made a pattern for going to that place that was focused upon studying the word of God, where the word of God is applied. Now, let me be clear, the church is not the synagogue, and the synagogue is not the church, but it was like it, a forerunner of it. Now, as we look here, the leaders attempted to make Christ look as if he had no respect for the Sabbath. And that is often what a legalistic mindset will do. It says, you are not reverent enough. You are not religious enough. Then on the flip side of that, we find that libertines do the same thing as well. They say, we hate religion. or we don't, um, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church like you do, or that type of thing. Many things we could say there, but we find that this is very practical, and also this is pertinent. So he goes into their synagogue. Secondly, we see the harassment that continues pursuing Christ. Notice what they say. Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. This man had a physical condition. He had great need. He had a desperate need. And they asked him, saying, Now, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, notice how this good thing becomes an evil thing. Not because Jesus heals on the Sabbath, but how they use this man. They bring this man knowing that... Je Listen, a couple things here. Many people like to say that Jesus was not religious. He was anti-religious. I think I know the heart behind that, but that's just not true. Jesus had no problem with a practice of worship. That's what we see here. They knew where Jesus was going. In every town that Jesus would go to, he would go to where the Word of God and the law of God was read and preached, and he would try to explain to them how the true understanding of that meaning. Here we see a trap is set. They know where he's going. They find a man with a withered hand. They set him up and ask a question that they might accuse him. Notice that this man did not ask Jesus to heal him as many others have already in Matthew's gospel. This is exactly the way that these religious leaders take this man and use him for their purposes. Reminds this is what legalism does. Legalists see others as a means to be used by which they make a point or exalt themselves. Illustration, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, just to say a sinner. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Legalists see other individuals as a means to stand upon to exalt their self-righteousness to show and display and to speak, see how good I am. 
And that's what they're doing here. They're taking this man with a withered hand whose hand is somehow, the, we don't have the description, but it's just not working properly. It is not functioning at full capacity. And we see they're using him. In fact, this is Paul's concern to the church, that legalism would come into the church, Galatians 4.17, when he says, they will zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they will want to exclude you that you might be zealous for them. Legalism sees people not as created in the image of God, as souls to be loved, as the family of God to be shepherded, to love the brethren, to love one another, to encourage and exhort unto good works for the glory of God. Legalism sees people as simply what they can do for us. Here's an idea, okay? Legalism sees people who come into the life of the church, well, they're only going to be here a few weeks anyway, and that's a sad thing anyway. That's true. People just come and go. So that's a fact. Legalism simply says, well, you're only here for so long. How can we use you while you're here? True Christianity and gospel-centered ministry is this. We love you. Thank you for joining our body. We want to take you from where you're at in your relationship with Christ. Do you know Christ, number one? We want to take you from where you're at in Christ and help you grow in your walk with Christ. We want to encourage you to use the giftings that God's given you to serve him for his glory through the life of the local church. you see the distinction? Do you see the difference? Legalism has no relationship. Legalism says you weren't here on the Lord's Day or on and on and on and on without, and saying, why weren't you here? How can we love you? How can we shepherd you? What, what's going on here? That type of thing. It's simply there is no relationship. It's just completely sterile and just simply judges people by the act that they perform. Right? There's a difference. And so oftentimes we can get off on one track or the other. Christianity says we love you. We want to see you glorify God. We want to give our best to him. We want to help you grow in Christ. We want to help you become the best mother you could possibly be in relation to Christ. Here's Christ. Here's who he is. Here's his claims. Here's his word. This is the bread of life. Let's grow in him. Same thing for the father. Same thing for the home. Same thing for the man. Same thing for the woman. But here we see their motive is revealed as they harass Christ in verse 10, that they might accuse him. Friends, when we find our spirit, in our spirit, a spirit of accusation, that's not good. I'm not saying there's never, ever a place for it, but the accuser is a name for Satan. We need to be careful before we accuse, and I think I can just go ahead and say, instead of accusing, lovingly rebuke. There's other words we could use. It, it speaks of the heart. The accuser has no desire to restore. The accuser simply loves to say, you're not good enough, or you're a sinner, or there, there is a very real problem here, so there's that. Gotcha, aha, that's accusing. The difference in biblical Christianity is, says, listen, friend, truth and grace, this is a great sin, brother. I'm seeing this in your life, or sister, I'm seeing this in your life. But listen, here's what God's word says. I love you. I love you enough to confront you, but I want to see you re restored back into Christ. Again, the book of Galatians, let you who are spiritual restore the sinning brother. Spiritual being the key word there, centered upon the gospel of Christ. There's no desire to restore, quote-unquote, Jesus in their mindset. They simply want to accuse and throw mud and to destroy. That they, verse 14, that they might destroy him. Listen, there is no room, so we make application for us, there is no room in our faith and practice for destroying. I'm going to say that again. There is no room. In our heart, when we see a, a, a spirit of, I want to see their demise, let's say it's a, a church down the street who's faithfully preaching the gospel, we begin to sense a spirit of destroying. There's no room for that. 
to destroy, really? To destroy image bearers? To destroy others who, do, who are we're all the family of God on the same team? There's other applications we can make. This is not of the Spirit's planting. This flower is not the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit is not of the Spirit's leading and planting in our lives. So when we see it, church, we must mortify it. We must look into the mirror of God's Word and say, Whoa, I'm feeling this, but this isn't right. I'm seeing this in my life, but this isn't biblical. Holy Spirit of God, I confess my sin. We root it out. But see, legalism doesn't do that. Legalism takes that hammer of accusation, and there is blood in the streets. And friends... May God, by his grace, keep our church from ever becoming like that. Because churches all over this county and all over the city, now I'm not from here, so I can say that. I don't know of specific circumstances, but you know it's true. There's just blood, there's bodies lying in the street. Why, why are there bodies metaphorically lying in the street, whatever? Because of this, a spirit, a hammer has been taken, much like ultimately the cross that they will apply to Christ. They will slay him. They will slaughter him they desire to accuse and destroy him so when we see this beginning to creep up in our flesh we will know one thing this is not of the lord even Pilate will go on to say i find no fault in this man now how is it that Pilate could find no fault in this man and yet they cannot write enough faults about him now there's some things that we deduct as we look at this harassment that they're giving to Jesus. Notice here, their actions reveal some things. Their actions reveal this. Number one, that Christ's healing power is real. This is not a mirage. This is not a, a backache or a, a tummy ache. This is a real miracle. And by the way, by their actions, they're saying, we know he can do this. We know he can heal this man. This miracle is visible, physical, and undeniable. This is not like the modern-day faith healers who uh, you can't ever quite feel out, figure out what's going on. The leg is always lengthened on the same guy every week. You know, It's always brought into alignment with the other one. This is real. None of us in our lifetime have ever seen a man with a withered hand made whole by the spoken word. We've never seen blind men. You go to the ophthalmologist or the optometrist right over here in Midtown Harriman, and you take a blind man in there, I mean, a seriously, a someone who's been blind from birth, there's going to be very little they can do for him. But one thing we know they can't do for him is simply say, see. And they see. Listen, this is undeniable. They have enough light to know that Jesus can heal. That's what's revealed in their actions. Come heal this withered man with a withered hand. Secondly, they know that Christ is able to heal at will. Of course, we know the full teaching of Scripture that Christ always did what he did according to the Father's will under the leading of the Holy Spirit. But from their perspective, they know that Christ has all power and all authority, whether or not they would ever say that. In fact, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went about all the Galilee uh, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among all the people. And his fame went throughout all of Syria. So this is a known fact that Jesus can do this. The third thing we see by this setup, that they provide is that they know, listen here, what a wonderful accusation. They know Christ cares for people. They know he's not going to pass this man by. This is a trap. This is a, aha, you care for people. You heal people at will. You have the power to do that. Mm. That's right. Is that the worst thing you got for us? The worst criticism that they have is that they know he will respond to this need, that he is the great physician and that this great physician heals people in need. So in summary, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to collect evidence against Jesus, but in reality, they're just simply collecting evidence against themselves. 
Number three, we see the hypocrisy that they display and also that he exposes there in verse 11. Here we see Jesus implements the law of the lesser to the greater. Verse 11, then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful, again, notice this declaration, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. Here we see the essence of their hypocrisy here in verse 11. This same crowd is criticizing Christ for helping a man with a withered hand whose life and the quality of his life would be drastically improved by this healing. Think about how much we do with our hands, right? Just take away one of those. Just take away and think about the limitations and the quality of your life immediately decreasing. And yet on their way home, this, this imagined scenario is, if they saw one of their sheep in the ditch... Jesus says, you know what you would do. In fact, the, the, the hint here of the text is that there was legislation that allowed a man, even on the Sabbath day, to get his sheep out of the ditch. Jesus, knowing the word of God, knows all of that. and says, from the law, the lesser to the greater, how much more valuable is man exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their heart. In fact, Matthew 23, 4, he says this about them. He says, for they, speaking of the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them, thinking of the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or adding burden upon bear, burden and yet not assisting the person crushed under the weight. He says, my burden, by the way, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, my burden is easy and my yoke is light, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do is to be seen and to be known of men. So in verse 12, we see here, have how much more value then is a man than sheep? And Jesus makes this declaration, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Therefore, if it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath to get your sheep out of the ditch, it is lawful to heal a man with a withered hand. Now, this is a stunning moment. In fact, Mark records this account in Mark 3, verse 1. It says that they refused to respond to Jesus. And this rhetorical question that he asks, in the words of Agatha Christie's Hercule well, there you have it. It's a stunning moment. It's just completely makes the point number four the healing we see in verse 13 the healing of the cripple then he said to the man stretch out your hand wait a second now jesus is being unkind really jesus is going to tell a lame man who cannot do something to do something wait a second lagrand you've just been telling us about how kind jesus is how he's the great physician but here he is going to tell a man to do something that man cannot do really Verse 13, he said, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Jesus, no duh statement here, Jesus knows the purpose of man. Man is made in the image of God. Man needs to be restored and redeemed. Man is not something to stand upon or to use as the legalists use man for, as they're using this man for. Jesus knows that our worth is not in our working parts, is it? 
We live in a Genesis 3 world, and all of us have defects and deformities and infirmities and all types of issues. But here we see the heart of Christ for those who are affected by this fallen, broken world. Jesus cares for this man more than he does the argument. They are only there for the argument. Jesus cares about this individual. And so he gives them the command. He says, stretch forth your hand. What does this teach us? Jesus is, of course, not being unkind. When Jesus, here's a principle for us in Scripture, when Jesus gives a command, he always imparts the grace to fulfill that command. When Jesus gives us a particular command, he will give us grace that enables and accompanies that command. Notice he doesn't touch him as he has done others. He simply gives the command. And for this man, his hand is withered. It is crippled and without strength. However, in simple faith, he he obeys the Lord. We see here the divine tension of human responsibility and the sovereign will of God. God gives the command and this man is enabled to do what he cannot do. You say, whoa, 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 that's not what happens. That's exactly what happens. He has no strength. He obeys God, but the strength comes from God. This is the only way this thing works. And spiritually, it happens the same way as well. This is a, a type in one sense of the new birth. There's a physical inability with the withered hand. In the same way, there's a spiritual inability that all men have. Ephesians 2.1, and you, he's made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. Men are born in trespasses and sins, and yet he makes us alive as we hear the gospel. The gospel call goes forth. We repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we preach. This is what we teach. We see that men respond as their hearts are turned to Christ. Acts chapter 17, Lydia attended the prayer meeting. She was religious but lost. She's there to pray. She's there to do the right thing. She wants to hear Paul preach. The problem is she doesn't know Jesus. And as she's there, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit gives commentary on the fact that her heart was opened. She was dead in trespasses and sins, but yet her heart was open. And she realizes she's lost. And she calls upon the name of the Lord, and she is saved. Now notice the connection here. This man's hand is without strength, but spiritually we are without strength. Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength. Paul uses the same context. For when we were still without strength in the right time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die... Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved, notice here, by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. What we see here in this physical miracle is a type of salvation. What a beautiful, what a beautiful picture it is. Lastly, we see the hostility that they exhibit here in verse 14. And this is a defining moment in the life of the Jews. God is about to put them on the shelf because of their rejection towards the person and work of his son until the fullness of the Gentiles comes as Romans uh, chapter 15, Romans chapter 5 teaches us. So we see here, verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot against Jesus how they might destroy him. 
This is a pivotal moment. We see their heart. The message is not received. But maybe it is. Today, as we conclude this message, as we look into the Word of God, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus is not neutral. Like, you can't come to Jesus and just, like, leave unchanged. Jesus either is who he says he is, or he's a liar, or he's insane. He's an imposter. This is the effect of Jesus. You either come to him in simple faith, believing his message, experiencing the power of the gospel, the gift of the Holy Spirit given to you through faith in Christ, or you're hardened. Isaiah tells us, he says, the word of God shall not return void. So even this morning, as we think about the hostility of the Pharisees and those who go out against him, they, re- they miss the message. This morning, there are those of you here who are either being softened by the word of God, the preaching of the word of Christ, the implanted word of Christ being given to you, and you're yielded to it, bowing to it. You're seeing the Phariseeism in your heart. You're seeing your sin, and you're saying, as a child of God, you're saying, wow, Lord, thank you for showing me that. I've had a spirit here that is completely inappropriate. I need to repent of that. I need to make amends. I need to, I need to, I'll thank you, Lord. So you're either growing softened through repentance, through the mirror of God's word, or you're being hardened. You're just getting harder and harder and harder. But one thing we know for sure is you can't stay the same. You you can't just stay checked out and say, ah, that's a good guy. Jesus is okay. No. He's either your Lord and Savior, or he will be your judge. Friends, look to Jesus and live. Run to Jesus. I present to you the Word made flesh. I present to you one who's greater than the temple. I present to you one who is Lord of the Sabbath. And I present to you the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came and lived the life I can't live. And by the way, as your pastor every single day shows me my sin through his word, and I must bow to him and repent to him and say, God, continue to root out anything that is not like Christ in the scriptures. We bow to you. We worship you. We serve you. May the Lord help us to respond and bow to King Jesus. He lived the life that we cannot live. We know it. He died the death that is our death to die. And he was buried and placed in the grave. And three days later, he rose again and ascended to be with the Father. And there he ever lives and intercedes for us as his people. And one day he will come and return until either death or he calls us in his return. Friend, I hope you know him. I hope you will look to Jesus and rest in Jesus and live. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word, and your word exposes us like a, Spurgeon, a surgeon's scalpel. Father, for the church this morning, we pray that, Lord, that we would be molded and yielded to the image of your Son. When we begin to see in the mirror of God's word hints of legalism or license, Phariseeism, Lord, we just pray that you would Give us the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to repent of that, see it, reject it, weed it out. The anthem of our life is Jesus, only Jesus. Look to Jesus. So, Father, we pray that we would never be moved away from this gospel that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, if anyone is here this morning who is lost and apart from you, we pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. There are some here this morning that may feel like they're too wicked. They are too great of a sinner. 
And Father, that is not true. There is more mercy in you than there is sin in us. Father, you delight to have compassion. You delight to show forth mercy. That's the withholding what we rightly deserve. The Pharisees love to give us what we deserve. Father, you delight to show mercy and you delight to give grace, which is what we do not deserve. Father, we are those who've tasted and seen of the kindness of the Lord. And may we here at Grace Church be those who regularly exhibit that same Jesus, that same gospel. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen.